And it might just be that you've never spent a lot of time, maybe you know something about the tabernacle. The book of Exodus, 15 chapters of the book of Exodus deal with the tabernacle. Most of Leviticus deals with things regarding the sacrifices, etc., in the tabernacle. Numbers has a lot to do and to say about the tabernacle. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, most of it is explaining the illustration of the tabernacle. Remember, two parts of the Bible are not two separate parts. They go together. There is the promise, the old promise, the new promise, and they go together. They are part of the same promise of God being fulfilled. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The two things go together. And so when we start and do a study on the tabernacle, you have to have probably two Bibles open on the table, save you turning all the time. And you have to have one open in Exodus, and you have to have the other opened in Hebrews. And a sort of little finger in the book of Revelation, because the Revelation again comes back to this picture of the tabernacle. It's a very, very exciting thing to follow all the way through the scriptures. Now, let's talk about the tabernacle and start. And I'm going to do a lot of reading of Scripture, so I hope you've got your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, maybe there's somebody next to you that will share one with you. Otherwise, you can just sit, and I promise to read it correctly. But we're going to start in Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. And he tells Moses what this offering is is to be that he needs from the children of Israel. These are the offerings you are to receive, and he starts to name them, the gold, the silver, the skins, the dyes, the wood, the olives, etc. Verse 8, Then have them, the Israelites, make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So there was to be a pattern, and it was going to be drawn out for Moses. So remember, he didn't only come down the hill with ten tablets staggering under them. In his mind, or possibly on scrolls, who knows, in some form or other, he had the plan. Remember his background. Remember he had learned to write in Egypt. Remember that he had learned to do all sorts of things in Egypt, probably learned to be an architect, to build slave cities. That's one of the things that he would have gone through school in the Egyptian culture to learn to do. And so it was very easy for God to use the knowledge that he already had to lay out how this building would be formed and made. And of course, later on, Solomon was to take the same structure and model the permanent temple after the tabernacle. Now, the position of the tabernacle was very important. In Numbers 2, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. So you are to put the tabernacle in the middle and the Levites actually were the ones to be closest around it. And then each tribe had its area. 
And if you could just imagine a big picture with the tabernacle set up by the Levites, they were the only ones that were allowed to set it up. They were the only ones that were allowed to pull it down. They were the ones that God had said, there's one tribe out of all the tribes that will be the priests and the ones that will do nothing else but minister to me in priestly function. They'll be taking care of the worship. They will be taking care of the prayer. They will be taking care of all the things to do with the tabernacle. And every time a million and a quarter people moved, and there was a lot of times the million and a quarter people moved, the tabernacle had to be totally dismantled, and then it had to be totally put up again. And it was always to be put up in the center of the camp. Now, this was for many reasons. It was symbolic that Israel was to be gathered around their central focus, which was the place where God was going to dwell amongst them. You know, when the tabernacle was finished in the last chapter of the book of Exodus, the cloud, the Shekinah glory, which was the manifestation of an immediate imminence, immediate presence of God, came down and filled the tabernacle. And whenever that really happened, it says the priest couldn't even minister in it. When God was filling the temple, the priests were just not able to even stand in the immediate presence of God. It must have been a very dramatic thing that when they'd done everything as God had said, then he blessed their work and he filled that place and all Israel worshipped. It had to be in the middle for many reasons. One, that it had to be the central focus of their lives. Worship has to be the central focus of our lives. The tabernacle must be in the middle of our lives. And everything else we do has to be camped around it. Just as in the desert, those people were camped around the very presence of God in the tabernacle. The other reason, which was a very practical reason, was to save it from attack. When people came against Israel, then they would save the most precious things of God which were in the tabernacle. The Ten Commandments were in the tabernacle on the tablets of stone. There were some very precious things. Aaron's rod that budded miraculously was in the tabernacle. There, were, there was gold, there was silver, there was incredible workmanship done by spirit-filled men of the highest crafted caliber. And these things would be protected if they were in the middle of the camp. And this speaks of much to us because I'm going to talk about worship. I'm going to talk about how desperately important it is to keep the central focus of our life, that holiest of all places, the place where God meets with us and where we meet with him. So the position was very, very important indeed. Now, we have to go to the book of Hebrews, and we'll be in Hebrews a lot. So turn to Hebrews, if you would, with me. And look at chapter 9. Let me read a few verses of this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. 
Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail, etc. And then he goes on to use this and to talk about it as an illustration. Verse 9, this is an illustration for the present time. Now, of course, the writer to the book of the Hebrews was talking about his time, but we know that the Bible is usable for all times for us as well. And so the very nature of the tabernacle, the things that went on there, the symbolism of it, the furniture of it, the sacrifices of it, the offerings of it, they are all illustrations for this present time. From it, little pictures will pop into your mind that really help you as you go through your daily life and also give you some real pointers on what real worship is all about. So this is an illustration. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. Now let's look at the plan of the tabernacle, which Hebrews chapter 9 has just set out for us. There were three parts to the tabernacle. There was an outer court of public worship where the court of the women in Solomon's temple, the court of the women was in the outer court. Women were allowed into the outer court. So was everybody that came to the temple. That was the people's place, the outer court of worship. Then there was the holy place where the Levites, the priests, did their work. Then there was the holiest of all, where the high priest only once a year entered. There was a great thick curtain, very thick, very beautiful, incredible workmanship, across the holy place, shutting out the holiest of all places. And I've just read to you what pieces of furniture and what things were in each of those places. Now, you know, in a sense, this reminds me of worship personal worship. I think some of us never get beyond the outer court of worship. We just stay where mostly all the people are. All the people that come to church on a Sunday. All the people that maybe are on the periphery believing and knowing Christ. Yet when you talk about really worship, they say, if they're honest, well, I'm learning or I've never got beyond the outer court, that's what they're trying to tell you. It's not desperately satisfying, it's pretty neat to be in the outer court with all the people, it was always crowded, there was always a lot of people there, it's fun, it gives you a good feeling, but that's not worship, and that's not where it's at. It's the entrance point, or should be, or can be, or could be, for an awful lot of people. The outer court of worship. Secondly, there's the holy place. This is when we realize as Christians so often that we have become priests. We are Levites. The Bible talks about the priesthood of all believers, and I come back to this in this study over and over again. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, there was one tribe, the Levites, who were to be the priests. And woe betide anybody that tried to be a priest other than the people God had designated. When we come to the New Covenant... We find, as John in the book of Revelation tells us, the church, the body of Christ, has become a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are priests in the sense that we stand in front of God on behalf of people and we can pray. 
and we stand in front of God to take his words to the people. And in that sense, we are priests. In that sense, we are God's kingdom of priests, which is talked about over and over again in the New Covenant, the New Testament. And so the holy place is the place where we learn to do the things that draw us closer to God in worship. We learn priestly functions. And you can't be a priest without learning how to worship, learning the rules of worship, learning the techniques of worship, learning the helps of worship, learning the symbolism of worship. There's a lot to it. And then, of course, there's the holiest of all. And that's the place, of course, that only one man in the Old Testament could ever enter in once a year to bring the sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of all the people, the holiest of all. When I was first converted, the girl that led me to Christ gave me a pile of books to read every week. There'd be four or five books, and they would go right across the gamut of Christian things. There would be a missionary book, missionary biography. There would be a very simple Bible study, like the ones that perhaps you can see in the bookstore with questions and answers, navigators usually, she gave me. Then there would be a doctrine book that would be something like Paul Little's book, Know What You Believe, that would just start and ground me in the creedal understanding, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, etc., taking me step by step through the beliefs and the doctrines of the Christian faith. Then there would be a topical book. This was all in one week. I had to read all these books, and then I had to write a book report on each one of one page. And then I had to see her the next week and give her the book reports, and she would question me so that she'd make sure I'd done my homework. I had no idea that everybody didn't do this when they became a Christian. It was only six months later that I figured out that I, nobody else did it as far as I knew. But boy, it was wonderful for me. And one of the books she gave me, I think it was the second or third week I had been converted, was a book called The Holiest of All by Andrew Murray. And it's a book on the book of Hebrews. It's a classic. And if you want to learn how and what the tabernacle means and learn about worship, you should wade through, and I use those words advisedly, the holiest of all. I knew nothing about the Bible. And when I think back to her giving me these books, and specifically that book, I think, what did she think she was doing? But I tell you something, I have never, ever been the same since I read that book. And right at the beginning of my Christian life, I learned what it meant to come into the holiest of all the holy place. That's what that book talks about. And that's what it teaches us. Because you see, Jesus, my great high priest, offering himself as the sacrifice instead of a lamb that belonged to someone else, opened the way into the holiest of all. And that's what the book of Hebrews teaches. That's what the gospel teaches. Why did he open it up? so that you and I could boldly come before the throne. Which throne? The mercy seat. That's what was in the holiest of all. That's what was in the holy place. The law was in a box covered with gold, yes, overlaid, beautiful, 
cherubim over it, etc. But in that box lay the Ten Commandments. Over the box was a covering, and that's where the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled once a year for the sins of the whole of Israel, the people of God. What was that saying? Symbolism. It was saying that only a life shed could make it possible for sinful man to walk into the presence of a holy God and meet him face to face. Where was this possible? At the mercy seat. That's the throne in heaven. That's what God has done for us through Christ's death. And that's what the tabernacle is a picture about, explained to us in the book of Hebrews. So there is an outer court of worship. There is a holy place. And there is the holiest of all. Once a year, the high priest went into there to make atonement. Now, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, the writer talks about this. Verse 11, Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. Then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Hebrews is a difficult book, but not if you'll put your mind to it. It just makes sense. And it's a wonderful, wonderful explanation of the tabernacle. So let's examine a little bit of this. What does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? He's called in Hebrews a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a priest king of Jerusalem, of Salem, which is a short word for Jerusalem. He lived in Abraham's time, and he's mysterious. Now, he was a man. He was not a god. But rumors started about this incredible man, Abraham, after coming back from a battle, knelt in front of Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem. And remember, he was not a Jew. <laughs> there weren't any Jews. There weren't any Jews till Abraham had had sons, and they'd had sons. Abraham wasn't a Jew. And so here's Abraham kneeling in front of Melchizedek, a strange king priest, who lived in a place called Salem, which was Jerusalem later, and he had become a mighty force in that land. 
He was so mysteriously viewed, some said he never was born and he never died. Now, this isn't true. He did get born and he did die. But there had become stories about Melchizedek. And the writer of the book of the Hebrews takes this mysterious king priest and uses him as a picture of Jesus, our great high priest. He says, you see, Jesus is like Melchizedek. He was born in a miraculous way. And he died and was raised again in a miraculous way. The beginning of his life and the end of his life are shrouded in miracle mystery. Just like Melchizedek's life. Nobody knows. There's no record of how he was born. There's no record of how he died. And so Melchizedek is used in this sense. And there's all sorts of things about this king priest that are interesting and gives you little sidelights onto Jesus. You need to get into that in detail. But one wonderful thing it says about Melchizedek is that as Jesus is like this king priest helping us to know God, he saves from the depths to the heights all that come to him. He blesses all that come to him. When, when Abraham came to him, there was blessing all around that incident. Somebody once said that Jesus saves from the guttermost to the uttermost. And in that passage on Melchizedek in 7 of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those that come to God through him. And maybe sometimes when you talk to people, you think that's what they need. They need to be saved from the uttermost depths. Sometimes I listen to people and it's the guttermost stuff I'm listening to. And this little phrase comes in, and I think, they need to know my high priest, Jesus, for he has made a way into the holiest of all through the sacrifice of himself, the perfect lamb. And these people, if they knew Christ, I could bring them with me in prayer into the holiest of all because of what Jesus, my great high priest, has done for us and for them. And he could actually, this person, this man, this woman, this boy, this girl can walk into the holiest of all, they can come boldly to the throne of grace because of what he has done for us. Now, let's look at the symbols for a minute. As they go into the court of the people, there is the brazen altar. That's where everybody is. And all that really happens there is you bring your animals. It might be a goat, it might be a lamb, it might be, if you're poor, turtle doves, whatever. It might be a heifer. It might be a bull. It might be a huge animal. If you have committed many sins, you bring many lambs. The idea is that you put your hands on the head of the animal and the animal is killed. And the picture is your sin is transmitted or laid upon the animal which bears the guilt and bears the punishment for it. For sin is so serious, as far as God is concerned, it requires a life given to forgive it. And so there's the picture. And that's what happens in the outer temple. And I would say that most people that come to church probably understand that. Jesus died for me. 
I put my hands on his head upon the cross. And my sin is transmitted to him. As Peter says, he has borne my sin in his own body on the tree. And like the picture in the outer court, I'm reminded of that in worship. The brazen altar, the lamb that is slain, the sin that is transmitted, imputed is the word, to the animal. And I am pronounced by the priest, forgiven. Symbols help. I think that would be very dramatic if I brought a little lamb and I put my hands on its head and saw it killed in front of me. You mean it, that little lamb has to die in order that my sins be forgiven? Then how much more when in faith I place my hands on the Son of God and he dies on Calvary? Now the book of Hebrews says the blood of sheep and goats and bulls can never take away sin. It can only cover it. But when Christ died, once for all, he doesn't need to die over and over again, once for all, then that was enough to do away with it. Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more, it says in the book of Hebrews. So you are made at one, the at one with God in the Old Testament. But when Jesus died on Calvary, he did something so that we can come once and for all and put our hands on his head, realize he died for us, that my sin was imputed to that perfect lamb, that God accepted that perfect sacrifice, and as it were, Jesus, the slain lamb, walked into the holiest of all, offering himself. God accepted that offering on our behalf. And now a new and living way has been opened into the very presence of God. And we can come boldly before the throne, the mercy seat, finding grace to help in times of need. So the brazen altar is where we begin. Symbols help. Then we go in to the area where the lava of cleansing is. But you know something about the lava of cleansing in the Old Testament? It was a very, very important place because once you had gone past the holy sacrifice, the lamb, you could not go any further until you had been cleansed. And the priests themselves needed to be ceremoniously cleansed with this bath, which was full of water. And it was basically not for their whole body, but for their feet, just for their feet. In 10.22 of Hebrews... Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It's talking about the lava of cleansing. It's the picture again from the tabernacle. Now, what is this saying? That we have to go beyond realizing that Jesus died for our sins and our sin is imputed to us. Thereafter, we begin to get closer and closer in our experience to knowing what it is to live in the holiest of all every moment of every day. And what we need to understand is that the lava of cleansing is necessary. Our feet have to be clean. Now, Jesus illustrated this in another picture, didn't he? He started to wash Peter's feet one day, and Peter said, Oh, you must never wash my feet. And Jesus said, Well, you can have no part for me unless I do. And Peter said, oh, well, then you better wash me all. And 
<laughs> Jesus said, you don't need all. You've had a bath today, in effect. All you need is your feet that have been dusty with your open sandals, cleansing. And the picture Jesus was using is a very wonderful one. That once we have been cleansed because we have put our hands on the head of the Son of God and we are forgiven for Jesus' sake, we are cleansed, we are forgiven, but our feet are still in the world. And they walk all over our world every day and they get dusty and they get dirty. And we need every night and maybe before the night to realize there is a spiritual lava of cleansing and we need to have our feet washed by Jesus. I love this picture and there is many a time in my quiet time when I know that I've had my feet in things that I shouldn't have had my feet in and they need cleansing that I have that little picture in my mind as I kneel down. And I see in my mind's eye Christ washing my feet. And I think I have the same reaction I would have had if I'd been Peter. Oh, not my feet, Lord. You, you shouldn't wash my feet. And he says to me, you have no part with me unless I wash your feet. It's hard for Jesus to wash my feet. He shouldn't have to do that. But it's necessary if my feet are to go onwards into the holiest of all. And let me explain something here. Once you accept Christ, all your sins are forgiven. Imagine that I'm God up here and that this line of the pulpit is time. So God, who is here where I am, sees you, knows you before you're ever born because he knows all things. Before you're ever born, he sees you born, and he sees whether you accept him or not, and he sees how you live and who you marry and how many kids you have, and he knows how you're walking towards your death. He knows the day of your death, the moment of it, and he sees you and knows you here as well, for God is outside of time. And when he, before time, sees you accept him, he forgives you everything. All this and all that. You are forgiven all your sin, but you've still got to walk along this line, and you still get your feet dirty, and you still need daily cleansing. Why? So that you will continue to walk after him, as you should as a Christian. You know, your relationship depends upon your birth, but your fellowship upon your behavior. Like the prodigal son, he ran away from God and got into all sorts of muck. He ended up in a pigsty. His feet were filthy. Pigsty of a life. But he was still his father's son because his relationship depended upon his birth. However, his fellowship depended upon his behavior. Right? So when he began to behave like he shouldn't have behaved, what happened? His fellowship with his father was broken. Did he ever cease to be his father's son? No. For the life of the father was in the son. That's what makes you your father's child. His life is in you. You can never cease to be the child of your father. They might disown you. You might never speak to them. You might get away from them. There's a separation because of your behavior but they're still your father, they're still your parent. And so, knowing that we have laid our hands on the, the lamb's head 
is one thing. Knowing that God has said your sins and iniquities I will remember no more is one thing. But from then on in, we have to go on confessing our sins. Why? Because they're suddenly not forgiven anymore if we sin. No, they are already forgiven. But that fellowship between the father and the child may be continued. And the lava of cleansing is a picture in the tabernacle of that truth. You need to get into 1 John 1 and read about walking in the light and being cleansed continually as you walk along. It's the same sort of picture. So what happens then? The priest goes through all of this and he goes into the holy place. And in the holy place there are some more things happening. There is the candlestick that has to be kept lit all the time. There is the presence bread that can be eaten by the priests. The presence bread for the priestly's blessing. Sacred food for the priests. The illumination of the candlestick is a beautiful picture. What happens in worship when we get beyond the outer circle of the tabernacle? Well, what happens should be apprehension, understanding who God is, how big he is, how great he is, how wonderful he is, how powerful he is. All that should happen because of the light in the holy place. And as a New Testament priest, as we learn to do the priestly things we need to do, before we go out of the tabernacle to serve God in the world, we need to learn the apprehension of God himself. And God promises in worship as we get to know him, as we move on to know the Lord in reality, he promises us light, a candlestick, a light that never goes out. You'll never go near God and find it dim. He'll always light your way. I love the verse in the scriptures that says, Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Where did I learn that? In scripture union did those notes and still do sometimes for a year or so. Wonderful, wonderful Bible reading material. And the theme verse is that, and they teach you to pray that every time you open the Bible. Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. I prayed it this morning, my quiet time. I'll pray it tomorrow. Maybe I won't pray it for two or three days and then I'll always remember though if I don't pray the verse to pray the thought. Illumination, the candlestick. And sometimes I shut my eyes and I imagine myself in the tabernacle and I see myself in the holy place. And I see God saying, look, the light is lit. Now I'll explain this to you. Now I'll explain that to you. I will explain myself. I'll give you light to see clearly the spiritual realities you need to see. And then he will give me the presence bread to eat. The presence bread. Isn't that a beautiful word? The presence bread. The bread of his presence. This is speaking, I believe, of the scriptures. I am the bread of heaven, said Jesus. I am the living word. This is the written word, whereby we can feed upon him. Now we feed upon him in the communion. It is not talking about that symbolism in this instance. The presence bread spoke of the manna from heaven, the Bible says. And Jesus used the manna from heaven as a picture of him. I am the bread from heaven. I am the heavenly manna. So in this instance, the presence bread was there. There was nourishment that would rejuvenate, give sustenance to the priests.
When you run out of energy, have some presence bread. Have some presence bread. It will sustain and energize you. And then, of course, there was an altar in the holy place. There are altars all the way reminding us of the only reason we can be there. God had rules to approach God. We cannot blast off into the presence of God just when we like. There is a way to approach him, and we must never forget it is only because of Jesus. It's only because of him. Well now, are we ready then to walk into the very presence, the holiest place of all? There's a veil there. It's a thick veil. I talked about it before. Do you remember when Jesus died on Calvary? Something happened in the temple. At the moment he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then shortly afterwards, finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. Meaning the work he had come to do. Redemption was done. At that moment, there was an earthquake, right? And at that moment, the people that were at that moment in the temple experienced an incredible sight, those that were near enough to experience it, the priests. The veil of the temple that hung across the holiest of all was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Remember? What did that symbolize? That the thing, the way that man had been shut out from the holiest place of all, through the death of Christ, the way had been opened into the new and living way that we could walk boldly before him. In the book of Hebrews, it says the veil was his flesh. And as his flesh was rent on the cross, as he died, our sacrifice, God said, from heaven to earth, I make the way. Man can never take the curtain and rip it open and say, I'm going to find my own way to God. I'm going to make up my rules. I'm going to have my religion. It is from heaven to earth. It is God making the living way. And only through Christ's death upon the cross. It was an incredible thing. That's what happened. And there is a way for you and for me through the veil. There's a wonderful hymn. I was looking for it in the hymn book and I couldn't find it. It's talking about, there he stands in heaven. There he stands the mighty conqueror since he rent the veil in two. That's the theme it keeps picking up. It's a, it's a fabulous hymn. And it's one of the first hymns I learned in England. Maybe it's an English hymn. When that veil was rent, there was the mercy seat, open, access for you and I. Can you imagine an ordinary person imagining themselves like the high priest being able to go in just even once a year and experience the cloud, the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God in that inner sanctuary? That is something that you and I have access to any moment of any day any moment of any day. But remember, don't step into the holiest of all until you have reminded yourself of the altar of sacrifice 
and had your feet washed and your mind has been illuminated by what you need to do once you get in there and then, as Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace and he will give you grace to help in time of need. So I was finishing a, a story about Corrie ten Boom for children. I was absolutely overcome with the times in these concentration camps that were just a picture of hell themselves, with everything that was going on, when Betsy and Corrie took each other's hands and walked through the outer door of worship into the holy place, reminded themselves of the sacrifice of Christ, of his torture, of his death on their behalf, and thanked him for it, asked Jesus, their great high priest, to cleanse them from their selfishness, even in those places when Corrie would want to stand inside the group of women on roll call because of the bitter wind that whipped around the outside and would pull Betsy in so they could be warm and how God convicted her of this, that this was selfishness and how she went to Jesus and he washed her feet. And then how they, together, walked into the holiest of all on behalf of other people and brought other people in to them. They were knitting socks for soldiers at one point when they were both sick, and if you were sick, that's what you got to do all day. Grabbing a skein of the dark gray wool, I dashed through the dormitory door, and thus began the closest, most joyous weeks of all the time in Ravensbrook. Side by side, in the sanctuary of God's fleas, they noticed that they were so lice and flea-ridden, the guards didn't want to come near them, which gave them freedom to pray, which they would never have been allowed to do if the guards had been standing over them. And so they had already thanked God for the fleas and the lice that God had allowed to keep the guards away. That had just happened. So in the sanctuary of God's fleas, Betsy and I ministered the word of God to all in that room. We sat by deathbeds that became doorways of heaven. We watched women who'd lost everything grow rich in hope. The knitters of Barracks 28 became the praying heart of that vast, diseased body that was Ravensbrook, interceding for all in the camp, guards under Betsy's prodding, as well as prisoners. We prayed beyond the concrete walls for the healing of Germany, of Europe, of the world. They were in the holiest of all, in Ravensbrook. Do we know anything of that? Do we know what it is to stand with him who's touched with the very feelings of our infirmities and to say to him, thank you, Jesus, for making a new and living way into the holiest of all. May we live there moment by moment, whatever we're doing, wherever we are. And if we do that, then the Old Testament picture of the tabernacle will become a reality for us moment by moment and day by day. Let's pray together. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest, near to the heart of God. O oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before thee, near to the heart of God. There is a place of comfort sweet, near to the heart of God, a place when we, our Savior, meet near to the heart of God. O oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, 
sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before thee near to the heart of God. There is a place of full release near to the heart of God, a place where all is joy and peace near to the heart of God. O Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before thee near to the heart of God. Lord, may we not be content until our worship matches your pattern shown us in the mount. Teach us never to be satisfied with the outer court of worship or even the holy place, but may we press on to meet thee at the mercy seat and never to be the same again. For Jesus' sake, who is our great high priest. Amen.